Ephesians chapter 3, starting at verse 14. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of His glory, He may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length, the height and the depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to Him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to Him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus through all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Father, we thank You for the clarity of Your Word. I thank You for that reminder by Paul as he proclaims that You do abundantly beyond all that we ask or think. We thank You that Your desire is for the generations to praise You. We thank You for the generations just in this room. We pray, Father, as we look back, should You tarry in sending Your Son, as we look back and see these children grow to be men and women, I pray that we would marvel that You have done far more abundantly all than over what we asked or thought that You would make with their lives. We pray You would be glorified in them that you would be proclaimed as mighty and worthy. We pray that our joy would be in you because of your work through them. Father, we would glorify you and praise you because of what you have done. I pray you would not let us rest our hope in the coming generation, but you would help us to root the coming generation in the truth. It is in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Ephesians 3, verses 14 through 21 are a prayer. It is a prayer of Paul. If you've been with us, you know this is the second time in Ephesians that Paul stops to pray for the Ephesians. The book of Ephesians is written to a church. It's named Ephesians because it is written to the church of Ephesus, as we see in the beginning of the letter. It is written by Paul, the apostle, and he is proclaiming to them the glory of God, God's plan and purpose in all things in chapters 1 through 3. In chapters 4 through 6, Paul proclaims what their lives ought to look like as a result. It's why at the bottom throughout the book of Ephesians, we have this little phrase, walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Because the book of Ephesians somewhat pivots at that verse in chapter 4. As he proclaims our calling in chapters 1 through 3, he proclaims there is a way we ought to live because of our calling in chapters 4 through 6. And so as we continue to work our way through chapter 3, we come this morning to verse 14, Paul's prayer for the Ephesians. I thought as we were talking about prayer, it's helpful to think about who taught you how to pray. If you think about prayer, who taught you how to pray? Often, you can kind of tell uh, where people are from or who they hang around by the way they pray, right? Maybe they pray, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Maybe you, you 
You could guess some things, right? Maybe it's more like, dear Jesus, we're stoked to be here. We are humbled to be before you, right? Maybe it's, we are thankful, we are thankful for this food, for this food. Maybe yub-a-dub-dub, thanks for the grub, yay God. What kind of prayer you hear is often what kind of prayer you pray. Praying is something that is far more caught than it is taught. In our lives, we spend far less time teaching about prayer and more time just kind of catching prayer. Just hearing people pray and kind of catching how they pray and praying like them. This is true in many things, right? I often think of of churches, and as you hear men who lead in churches, I listen to the way they read Scripture, and they tend to kind of read it the same way, publicly, I mean. Um, we, we tend to speak particular ways in culture, and that's not always bad. It's good to catch good things, right? Maybe in prayer you have caught good things like thankfulness, transparency and openness with God, humility before God, reverence before God, consistency before God. You can catch good things, but... Like most things that you catch, you're not always aware of what you're doing. You just do it because you caught it, right? It's not always something you put a lot of thought into. And I would say most of us feel burdened by prayer more, most often. We think we ought to pray more. And that's a good thing in that you ought to pray more. Your, your relationship with God ought to be closer. And on this side of earth, I don't think you will ever come to contentment that you are close enough to God. Because right now, as Peter tells us, though you love him, you do not see him. But you love him and you rejoice with a joy inexpressible. You can't even make the full expression of your love for God this side of heaven. And so it would be normal that prayer is something we struggle with. And as we catch it more often than we concentrate on it, I think it would be helpful for us to simply look at the great example of Paul in prayer. Remember, this writing is not just an example to us as Paul proclaims his prayer in this book. This is the divine word of God. This is not just Paul's opinion about prayer. This is not just Paul's cultural character of prayer. Though Paul is involved here, and you can hear how Paul does it that maybe other biblical authors didn't, but this is divinely inspired. We could learn much by learning from Paul. So this morning, our plan is to spend our time in verses 14 and 15 looking at three things about Paul's prayer. The purpose of Paul's prayer, the posture of Paul's prayer, and the patriarch of Paul's prayer. The purpose of Paul's prayer, the posture of Paul's prayer, and the patriarch of Paul's prayer. I want to address this, and and I hope you can see from the verses in the text, I, I don't just want to teach you this morning about prayer based on my own ideas. I want us to really take our time pouring through this letter by Paul for the good of, for our good and God's glory to be thoughtful 
and taught. So this morning, as Paul says, for this reason, he is communicating to us the purpose of his prayer. As he says, I bow my knees before the Father, he is communicating the posture of his prayer. And when he says, the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, he is communicating who is the patriarch or the father of his prayer. So let's begin looking at verse 14. For this reason. For this reason is a phrase that's important here. If you remember and open up your Bible, look with me at verse 1 of chapter 3. Paul already said, for this reason. Paul already was about to begin this prayer. He said, for this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles... And then he stops. He doesn't conclude what he's going to do. He's making a statement and he doesn't give the action. He, he needs something else there to say, on behalf of you Gentiles, I'm going to what? But he pauses and he says, assuming that you have heard the stewardship. So he says, there's something I want to teach you before I pray for you. But we know what Paul was about to do is pray because as we read in context, in verse 14, we see he returns to that idea and he says, for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. So we want to look at what is the purpose of Paul's prayer. Well, he tells us in that word, for this reason, he's telling us there is a purpose for his prayer. There's a reason that he's choosing to pray. How do you figure out what it is? If we said right now, well, Paul says, for this reason I pray, what do you think his reason is? We might all come up with different ideas, right? Well, I think prayer is really about us communing with God. I think prayer is really about like self-venting. I think prayer is really, that's why we pray. We come up with all kinds of reasons. If we want to know the reasons for Paul's prayer, you know what we do? He says, for this reason. So whatever he's just told us, that's the reason. The context of the Word of God is helpful to us. We can't look at this prayer and just pretend that verse 1 or verse 14 exists by itself. We must look what came before it. If he's telling us it is for this reason, he then has told us what the reason is. So if you look with me at verse 17 through 22 of chapter 2, Paul tells us, in verse 1, as he starts to pray or is preparing and then pauses, he says, for this reason. Well, what was the reason? He has proclaimed from the beginning of this book the will of God in salvation. In chapter 1, he proclaims the eternal plan of God, the purpose of God that will result in the praise of God. He prays thanking God for salvation for the Ephesians. He prays for their maturing as Christians. And then he prays, or rather states, that God has given authority over all things to Christ. As head of the church. Then in chapter 2, he proclaims something that we might not often think as important, but the Word of God says is incredibly important. He says that we all were dead in sin. God had an eternal plan that he would accomplish. And while God is accomplishing this plan, what were you? You were dead in sin. And there's a great contrast that comes in chapter 2, verse 4. While you were dead in sin, while your heart was lost, Christian, not everyone. He says, you who are in Christ, you were once dead in sin. But God, being rich in mercy, 
by grace has saved us, even when you were dead in sin, he has made you alive in Christ. And then as Paul continues to express that, he says, mercy and salvation in Christ is not just for Israel, not just the people of God, Old Testament, but is for all people, Jew and Gentile, who put their hope in Christ. And at the end of chapter 2, he proclaims that Christ has come and he has preached, he has preached peace to you who were far off, Gentiles, and you who were near, Jews, for through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens and saints with the members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. And in him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. What has Paul done? In two chapters he has moved from the eternal plan of God to your participation in that as you were dead in sin and his work in you that you now, Jew and Gentile, are part of the church being brought together for the glory of Christ. That his eternal plan is is about him and is rooted in him, but you are part of it in that he has called and saved people to be the church and his plan works out what? That you are now joined together and grow into a holy temple in him. And in him you are being built together as a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. The church, as even as we looked at last week at the end of chapter 3, where are we, 14, 13? That the manifold wisdom of God is proclaimed through the church. And so Paul says, for this reason, because the will of God has been proclaimed in eternity past, and God is faithful to bring about that will. And in glory, that will has now included not just the Jews, but he has revealed to us that his eternal plan from the beginning, the foundations of earth, is to save Jew and Gentile, and that they would all come together and they would glorify God on earth in such a way that he is proclaimed glorious. And Paul says, for this reason, I'm praying for you. Why is he praying? Paul is praying because he knows the will of God and he longs for it to be done. He knows the will of God and he longs for it to be done. The purpose of Paul's prayer, number one, is that he knows the will of God and God's people pray for his will to be done. Right? Let's just think the most basic place we would turn to if we said we want to know how to pray. You're in good company if you feel like, I need help in this. Jesus' disciples came to them, and what did, he say, what did they say to Jesus? Teacher, teach us how to pray, right? What does he say? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Jesus taught his disciples to pray for the will of God to be done. In Ephesians, we see the will of God is planned and purposed and will come about. So then we go, Whew, I'm glad that God's will is sovereign and eternal. I don't have to pray anymore. What he wants happens. Right? You think, God's sovereign. He's in control of all things. Why should I pray? Well, Paul doesn't respond that way. He goes, God's sovereign. His, will's, his will is going to come. Why waste time praying for something else? Let's pray for his will to come. Let's pray for him to do what he said. And this is a biblical practice 
This, is, this goes on throughout the whole Bible. If you look at Psalm 19, there is a reoccurring refrain. It says, let your steadfast love come to me, O Lord, your salvation according to your promise. I entreat your favor with all my heart. Be gracious to me according to your promise. Let your steadfast love comfort me according to your promise. Uphold me according to your promise. Keep my steps steady according to your promise. What is he doing? He is appealing to God based upon the will of God which God has proclaimed. He's praying that God would do what he says. And why is he praying so? Because God is glorified in doing what he says. Because the church exists on earth to proclaim the will of God to the earth. And God longs to do that, and he will do that. And his people long to proclaim it and see it happen. They pray to him for the will of God. Jesus prays this very thing. If you look at Matthew 6, as Jesus is in great, uh, or Jesus is asked how to pray, as I already said, he says, your will be done. But in Matthew 26, Mark 14, and Luke 22, you see Jesus praying alone in the garden. And what does Jesus pray? I assume many of you are familiar. If not, write those chapters down and look at it later. As Jesus is praying, he is in great distress, right? Jesus is preparing to go to the cross. He has been betrayed by Judas. He's already aware of that. He's asked Peter to pray for him, and Peter keeps taking naps. And what does he do? He goes and he prays to the Father. He says, if there is any other way, but not my will, but what? Your will be done. Jesus prays according to the will of the Father. He prays according to the will of the Father, even in his greatest distress. When he is in distress, he does not try to convince God of another will. He makes requests of God and submits himself to God's will. He says, if there is any other way, but your will be done. Paul is in similar distress, and as he restarts with For this reason, Paul in chapter uh, 3, if you look back with me at verse 13, as Paul has described his ministry, as he says to them, for this reason I long to pray for you, and then remember he takes that big pause that we spent a few weeks in. He says, assuming that you know I'm an apostle to the Gentiles, that Christ has come, that the gospel is proclaimed for all, that you are now heirs and members and partakers of the promise, and that all of this is the will of God that is coming about because God's plan from creation was that the church would manifold the wisdom of God on earth. And then what does Paul end that statement with? Look at verse 13. He says, So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you which is for your glory. Paul does not just pray because he longs for the will of God to come, but he also states, he understands for them, the present suffering of life will distract us from the will of God. It will not thwart the will of God. The will of God will still come about. But Paul reminds him and says, look at the truth of the gospel, and I know you know I'm suffering. You might not know, but the Ephesians did. As Paul wrote to them, he was imprisoned. He's in jail. 
And so he's writing to them that God has a marvelous plan for all eternity. Not just a marvelous plan for your life, a marvelous plan for all eternity. He's not proclaiming everything's going to be peachy keen for you. He's proclaiming you were once dead in sin. You wanted nothing from God. You wanted nothing to do with God. But God is merciful and gracious, so he has saved you. And no matter the present circumstance, he is faithful. He's just proclaimed that through the cross, his people being saved at the darkest hour of humanity, God accomplished salvation for his people. And so he reminds them, I know that you know I'm in prison. For this reason, I pray that they would know the will of God, that they would understand it despite the suffering. Jesus prays in his greatest distress and he prays for the will of God. Paul proclaims the will of God and he pauses to love the Ephesians to say, I know you could easily be distracted because you could go, how is this God's plan if you're in jail, Paul? You're in prison, bro. You're saying that God controls everything and you are locked up with a Roman guard. And Paul says, Jesus was put on the cross by Roman centurions. Our God is not phased by the Roman Empire. His plan is eternal. Don't lose heart by my present suffering. He's working out a plan. And then he says, for this reason. Because we need to pray the will of God, because we by grace know the will of God, and because the present distress of our lives can often distract us from the will of God, we need to remain praying for the will of God. Christians, we pray for the will of God to come about. That does not mean we are never in distress and pray for other things. Hebrews gives us great comfort. He says, let us pray as Danny read to the high priest who can sympathize with our weakness, but one who is able, and, and we have a high priest who is able to sympathize. Let us with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we might receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. You will have times of need. And what ought you to do? Pray to him to be reminded that his will is not thwarted. Pray to him that he would accomplish his will on earth. And be reminded that at times our suffering is due to the fact that he has promised, as we love Christ, we will suffer in this world so that we have the opportunity to proclaim that our hope is not in this world. The purpose of Paul's prayer is he takes great hope in the will of God. The posture of Paul's prayer. Notice what he says. He says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father. He describes a posture, right? He says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father. You might have grown up in, in uh, church traditions or uh, religions that practice that prayer is always done on the knees. Uh, there would be those even that, that would say that other people are vain and nonconformist to the will of God because they don't kneel in prayer. There are many church services. Well, there are many services. It would be difficult to call them church services where people are just instructed to kneel and sit and kneel and sit and kneel and sit. And there is rote religious practice about the kneeling before God. 
Paul doesn't just describe a physical position, and he is not commanding. Remember, we're learning from Paul, and so we can learn from Paul. It would be appropriate at times to kneel. It is not wrong to kneel, but kneeling is not the only part of prayer. And as Paul writes this letter, he says, I bow before the Father. I'm sure Paul wasn't talking or writing and immediately went, oh no, I bow before the Father. Okay, now I can keep writing because I'm on my knees. Now, what is he doing? He is describing the posture of his prayer. Just for clarity, I want to remind you that the Bible speaks much of posture and prayer, and it doesn't always speak of kneeling. I often think of 2 Timothy, rather 1 Timothy 2, that I desire men everywhere to lift up holy hands while praying. For my children, I don't want my children to think we close our eyes and fold our hands for any other reason that they don't know how to control themselves when their eyes are open and their hands aren't folded. I remind them of that. I say, why, why are we doing this? Not because it makes us holy, because it helps us to focus on what we're doing. Hold your hand and close your eyes, because you're not. At times, I have told my children, raise your hands in the air. God says that men everywhere should pray with holy hands in the air. Let's raise our hands in the air. And <laughs> without fail, uh, the posture is this, but the posture is not what Paul's talking about. As I try to communicate to my kids, it is not the posture that we are physically in that matters. They sometimes lose the posture that Paul is referring to. Because when I say, we're not going to pray with our hands folded or holding hands and our eyes closed. We're going to pray some other way. They lose it. They, they just can't take it. Please don't harass them for this. Your children lose it too sometimes. It's distracting as a small child. They have a father who thinks everything is a biblical, who knows, everything is a biblical lesson, but sometimes the lesson's for me. <laughs> not going to do that one again, that didn't work. Paul's not talking of the posture, it's not about kneeling or raising arms. What he's talking about is the posture of submission to God. Notice, just previously, in verse 12, he says, we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. Two verses later, what does he say? I bow my knees to the Father. What, how does Paul focus his prayer knowing he has confidence and access before God? Submissively. See, we think confidence before God means we can do whatever we want. We proclaim confidence as that in our society. Well, they just got to be confident. They just got to feel like whenever they walk into a room, they know what to do. They know how to do it. They're prepared for every situation. We are weak, fail, frail creatures. If you are walking in to talk to the creator of the whole universe and your posture is not bowed, if there is not fear and awe in you, or as we will look in Isaiah, if you do not tremble at his word, it doesn't matter if you're kneeling. It doesn't matter if your arms are raised. It doesn't matter if your eyes are open or closed. You are not praying in the posture of prayer. It is not about our physical posture, but the state of the heart. God describes this often, uh, particularly written for us as example in the Old Testament as he proclaims to his people. He tells them that their acts of worship are not honorable because the act of worship. Their acts of worship are honorable because God has called them to do it. And when they do it faithfully, it honors him. One of my favorite examples, Isaiah 66 says, thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me? 
And what is the place of my rest? All these things my hand has made, and so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. But this is the one whom I will look, he who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. He who slaughters an ox is like one who kills a man. He who sacrifices a lamb like one who breaks a dog's neck. He who presents a grain offering like one who offers pig's blood. He who makes memorial offering of frankincense like one who blesses an idol. These have chosen their own ways. Their soul delights in their abomination. What is he doing? In verse 3, he is proclaiming their false worship. He's saying, you come to sacrifice a bull to me, it's like slaughtering a man. The first two might be lost on you if, you if you don't have the frame of biblical reference in the Old Testament. But you probably recognize the last two. He says that he who presents a grain offering is like one who offers pig's blood. Well, as he's talking to a Jew, remember Jews weren't allowed to eat pork. Gentiles are. Praise God for the new covenant. We can have bacon. They could not, right? And so he says, when you're coming to me with a grain offering, it's like you're offering me pig's blood. He's saying this is an abomination, And so he uses these descriptions to help them understand their worship to God is an abomination. Why? The pictures don't describe why. The statement does. They have chosen their own ways, and their soul delights in their abominations. He is contrasting two people in worship. He's saying there are those who worship humble and contrite in spirit, and they tremble at my word. They come humbly to the word of God, humble and contrite. This is speaking of being broken. Humble and contrite does not mean an emotional state. This is not a description of your emotional state. This is a description of your spiritual state. That you are one who hears the word of God and you tremble. You you long to be faithful in such a way that you are fearful of not being faithful. You in reverent awe know who God is. And you treat him accordingly. This is like a police officer handling a firearm. He is not afraid as he handles it rightly, but he knows that firearm in the hand of a criminal or anyone else who's not trained is a dangerous weapon. So he handles even his firearm, what? With a reverent fear. That he holds in his hand something that takes life. But Jesus says, do not fear him who can take your life, but fear him who owns your life, who can kill both body and soul forever. There is a reverent fear towards God, and the deference of that fear is not a current emotional state. It is a spiritual state that is willing to submit to the word of God. To be broken and contrite does not mean that you always walk around helpless and hopeless as an emotional state. It means you are always aware that without Christ, you are hopeless and helpless. You are dependent upon him for all things. You are not arrogant or proud in your way of life. You are not like those who have chosen their own ways. Their soul delights in their abominations. They delight in disobedience to the word of God. He says right worship are those who delight in obedience. They tremble at my word. The Old Testament proclaims this throughout, and and let me just, in case you're thinking, okay, that's how we come to God then, the Old Testament makes very clear throughout that the law and knowing the law can never save you. Being fearful of the law can never save you. 
you need a new heart. And the glory of the gospel, the mystery in Christ that we have gone through, if you have not been with us in Ephesians, is proclaimed that God has given new hearts to his people. He has given hearts that long to obey him. But the law was never put there to say, you can do this, be good enough. It was put there to show you who you are. And that's what he says. He goes, look, they're doing the right things. In our modern context, it would be they come to church. They give to poor people. They help their neighbor. But what do they delight in? Their abominations. They delight in the sin of the earth. They seek to do what they are commanded is right because they are living in fear, but not a reverent fear of God. They're trying to go before God and say, look, I'm doing all the right things. I slaughter my oxen. I bring my grain offering. And he says, you do those in your own way for your own purposes. You're giving me pig's blood. Be humble and broken and tremble at the word of God. Don't treat it as some game where you're just going to get to the end and go, come on, God, really? Look at that guy over there. You're not letting me in? I'm a good dude. I've never been to jail. Let's just clarify, that's not the standard of being a good dude. <laughs> that's just the standard of like not going to jail. That's, that's a good goal. If that's your goal to be a good dude, it's not that good of a goal. You can do a lot of dumb things and stay out of prison. We don't look to the law to be saved, but we look at the law and it causes us, because of his grace and salvation, to be humbled and broken before him. So let's look at some examples of prayer in humility. Those who hear his word and tremble by his grace. Not those who hear his word in fear and long and desire heartless appeasal of God that they just want to be approved so they kind of show up at church or do the right thing because they always want to be able to say I'm a good person or those who know their spiritual state without him and are dependent upon him for all things that when his word says they say where else may we go Lord let your will be done so the posture of prayer is not just that you kneel, but that your heart is always kneeled to God. Let's look at some examples. Uh, I would encourage you to look this week at the book of Nehemiah. In just chapter 1, you see humble prayer in preparation. Nehemiah has been exiled, as the people of God were, according to the promise of God. And Nehemiah bows before God because of the exile, and he prays to God exactly in what we just discussed. He prays, God, forgive us. For our sins, forgive my father, forgive me, forgive all of our people, Lord. We have sinned against you, but be faithful to your promise. He appeals to God. And so you see, Nehemiah prays in preparation. What is he praying in preparation for? Well, Nehemiah was exiled as a Jew, but he was working in a pretty high-level job. He was a cupbearer to the king. So he would be the guy that brings the cup to the king, and uh, he's also the guy that's responsible to drink the cup, and make sure it's not going to kill the king. He's an ancient security system. It would be very common in the ancient world and sometimes in the modern world to assassinate leaders to take their position. So ancient kings were fearful of that, some more than others. And most of them had someone who would sample their food and drink and see, am I going to die from this? And that was Nehemiah's position. You might think, no thank you, but Nehemiah ate and drank better than most people in the ancient world because he had king's meals all the time. So if you're food motivated, 
America. It's a pretty good job. But Nehemiah knows this is his job, and so he is preparing to go to the king. Now, remember, Nehemiah is not an advisor to the king. He might have conversation with the king, but we know he does have conversation with the king, and we know there is a level of affection by the king to Nehemiah, but Nehemiah is well aware this king could kill me. So he prays because he sees the state of earth, he wants the will of God, and he's going to go to the king. Nehemiah doesn't just pray in preparation, he prays alone in preparation, but he prays also in perspiration. As you continue to look, it's clever, preparation and perspiration, right? When he's sweating it, he still prays. And so as Nehemiah goes to the king, it says, in the month of Nisan, that's not a car sales month, that's an ancient month, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took the, up the wine and gave it to the king. And now I had not been sad in his presence. So he's saying, look, I didn't look sad in front of this guy. Because what happens if you look sad and you're the dude eating and drinking the food for the king? Why do you look sad? What's wrong with my pot roast? No, you've got a happy face on. You better look joyful if you're tasting my pot roast. Because I'm not going to eat that if it's going to kill you. So he says, I haven't looked sad in front of him. And the king said to me, why is your face sad? Seeing you are not sick, right? It's like, you're not sick, right? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. Then I was very much afraid. And I said to the king, let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad when the city and the place of my father's graves lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Then the king said to me, what are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven. And I said to the king, If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. And the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, How long will you be gone, and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. There's other sermons I want to preach right now about the way we treat government. As Nehemiah is exiled in a land who literally destroyed them, took them, imprisoned them. And how does he deal with Artaxerxes? Oh my king, he is respectful. He is prayerful. He trusts that God has put put Artaxerxes in power. But what I think is is necessary for us to notice here, what does he do? As he is speaking to the king, what does he do? He says, so I prayed to the God of heaven. He's fearful before the throne of Artaxerxes, probably one of the most powerful kings of the time. And what does he do? He goes to the throne of all authority. How does he do it? He multitasks. He's talking to Artaxerxes, but he is praying to the God of heaven. Maybe sometimes you feel like, I don't pray enough because you don't pray in the moment. You're not praying under pressure. Christian, it's okay to pray to God while you're distracted by other things, right? Nehemiah is distracted by what he wants and, and what he's trying to do and the fear of the situation of him addressing this with the king. And what does he do? He doesn't go, oh, I don't want to be distracted. I've got to pull myself together. He prays to the God of heaven. He lays it before the throne. Yes, he prays in preparation, but he also prays in perspiration when things get distressed 
he prays to the Father on the throne. In humility, pray to be heard by God, not men. As Jesus gives instructions to prayer, he says, When you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at street corners. They love to be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room, shut the door, pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Pray to be heard by God and not by men. Let your joy be in God and not the praise of others. Pray faithfully and fervently, but not fruitlessly. Don't think that there is some formula you can get right to go to God. There are traditions that would teach you to pray formulaic. Now, it is not bad to pray a prayer that is pre-written. That's not wrong. But if you believe the only way that God will hear your prayer is if you come in the right formula, and so you just pray the formula, not thinking about what you're actually saying to God, he says that is fruitless. When you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do. For they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. He says, don't, don't pray to be long-winded or vain repetition. Don't pray to just think, if I do this enough in the right formula, God will forgive me. Don't treat prayer as though it is your self-help facility. It's not about you as much as it is about who you are going to. Yes, it affects you, but it is not for your personal spiritual health. It is a result of your spiritual health. You don't go to God because I want to be fixed alone. Yes, we pray to God, we cry out to God because we know he's the authority of all things. But we go to God because he is the creator of all things. And he knows what we need. So we go and we ask him. Many people are fearful to pray because they think, I can't pray like so-and-so. Right? I love, in the last five years, I don't know how many times I've been at a meal and somebody says, oh, it's time to pray. And everybody just looks at me. And I'm like, what, you guys don't know how to pray? Nobody else prays here? Like, I'm thankful for it. I love it. I love to pray to God. So if everybody's like, Jake, we're going to bestow the honor on you, I'm like, that is sweet and kind of you. But what I like to do is bestow the honor on somebody else. Well, if everybody's going to look to me, then I'm going to pick who's going to pray. <laughs> Thank you. Can you pray for us? It is joyful to know it is not about the right formula. It's not about who can say the most beautiful words in prayer to God. You have confidence and access to him, not because the beauty of your words, because the beauty of your Savior. Go to him. Jesus prayed despite distress and distraction. I already talked about Nehemiah doing that, but Jesus, in distress and distraction, still prayed. And he prayed in the afternoon, which I think is interesting, because we normally think our typical is like, what do you got to do? You got to get up at 5 a.m. before the kids are up. You got to get a little bit of coffee. Your wife's got to get coffee if you have one. You got to sit down together. You have to be super holy together. You got to pray, and then you got to get out. And if you don't do that, your whole day's wrecked, right? You know you're having a bad day at work. You can pin it down. It's because we didn't get up at 5 a.m. and pray together. What are you living? You were living some self-help gospel where you have a formula to fix your whole life. 
Jesus had times where he longed to be with God and he couldn't because of the distress and the distraction. In Mark, we see that Jesus, or rather Matthew 14, verse 23 is all I put there. You could read the whole context. And after he had dismissed the crowds, dismissed the crowds, he went up onto the mountain to pray by himself. When evening came, he was there alone. So he did this in the afternoon. But, but read and see what went on. John the Baptist was just beheaded. And the disciples of John came and told Jesus he's beheaded. And it says Jesus wanted to go to solitude. Jesus is mourning the loss of his cousin and who he called the greatest man on earth, born of a woman. So Jesus is distressed because John dies. And so he goes to try to get alone, and what happens? The crowds follow him, and then he feeds the 5,000. We often think of this story as Jesus' great doing and his great ministry. But Jesus is doing this ministry hearing that his cousin, who is John the Baptist, just died and was beheaded by a pagan king. He's in great distress, and what does he do? He doesn't say, I can't serve these people. He serves them in miraculous ways. Jesus longs to be alone, but he keeps serving the people. He's distressed because of the situation, but he continues to do the will of God. And what does he do? He doesn't say, my whole day's wrecked because I didn't pray this morning. Maybe he did pray that, that, that morning. But what he does is he serves and he loves them faithfully. And then when he gets the chance, then he goes and prays to God. It's not the formula of timing. It's not the stress of your life. I'm sure Jesus was praying to God as he always did continually. I'm sure as he is doing these things, he's praying to God. But Jesus did not look at a formula of he didn't have the right day, so now he's wrecked. He knew the will of God was coming about. That day still wrecked him as a man. And he still served and still sought to get time. But Jesus does pray early in the morning in preparation, much like Nehemiah praying in preparation. He prays because he's waiting to move ahead. And we see that in Mark, many other places. It says this was Jesus' practice. Rising early in the morning while it was still dark, he departed, went out to a desolate place, and he prayed there. Jesus went to pray alone. Jesus didn't just pray privately. He also prayed thoughtfully, publicly. I want to encourage you with this. We often think, okay, if I'm going to pray, i got to go to my closet alone. I don't want to be the hypocrite that prays before men. But when Jesus prayed before men, which he did often, he prayed thoughtfully. He wasn't praying to be heard by men, but he was praying with the knowledge that men were hearing. And many of you are called to pray publicly. And, and you might feel this somewhat like disjointed. I, I don't know what to do because I, I want to pray, but this is between me and God. So some people try to pretend no one else is there and just talk to God. And I don't know if that's thoughtful to them. Sometimes we don't consider the audience to whom we're praying with. When I pray with my three-year-old, it's very different than when I pray with my wife. I mean, you just heard the tone of my voice talking to all of our children. We must think of who we're talking to. And so Jesus, as he went and prayed, whoops, I went ahead, sorry. In humility, pray thoughtfully for the glory of God to the benefits of others. In John 11, he says, So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, As Lazarus is about to be risen from the grave, Jesus lifts up his eyes to heaven. He's praying to God, but what does he say? Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me. But I said this on account of the people standing around 
that they may believe that you sent me. Faithful prayer does not mean you only pray alone. It is not that you can only bow your knees before the Father if no one else is there. It means you bow your knees to the will of the Father. To love Him and to love others is, is a very good summary. And you, as you bow before the Father publicly with others, you can bow like Jesus. It's not wrong to be well aware other people are listening and therefore to be thoughtful in your words for the sake of them. You're praying with the will of Christ. There are others you're familiar with that we don't have time for in Luke 18 that you are not to pray like the self-righteous who go before God and only compare themselves to those around. Thank you, I'm not like these people. We are encouraged to pray joyfully, continually, and thankfully for this is the will of God. Rejoice always. And then the who. From the Father whom every family on heaven and on earth is named. This is directed towards not a God, not your God, the God. And often we think of things, maybe on Facebook now, we don't even send out sending out prayers for you when the thought is always, who are you sending those prayers out to? Now we don't even say that, we say good vibes. I don't know how you send good vibes to someone, that makes no sense to me. But I do know how you pray for someone. And as he says, I pray, he says, I pray to the Father. And Jesus came to earth so that his people would have access to the Father. But let me make clear, even God's people don't always have the ear of the Father in their prayers. And that might be shocking. We might think, but God hears everything. Yes, but he in grace and love does not answer everything. Men, 1 Peter 3 says that if you are not living with your wife in an understanding way, your prayers are hindered. Your request to him, he says, if you don't love my daughter, why would I allow you to continue on the path you're requesting? If you don't love my daughter who I made, why would I say, bring me your requests? Let me keep answering them. No, in love for you and her, he hinders prayer. The Psalms and Peter also say that his eyes are toward the righteous and his ear hears their cry, but against those who do evil, he does not hear. We are not talking about a generic God. We are talking about the specific God. And as we make requests to that God, we must know the truth of who he is. We want to be thoughtful about the Father we pray to. I want to encourage you with one more thing. Prayer is directed to the Father. As you read your Bible, you will find it difficult to justify praying to Jesus or the Holy Spirit. I, I know this might be challenging to some, and I wanted to challenge you because I want you to look at the Word of God. As you look at the Bible, you will be challenged to find prayers that are directed at Jesus or the Holy Spirit. The Father is the one whom prayer is directed to. Now, I don't have time to go through the Trinity, but you know that God, our Father, is the Father of the Trinity. One God, three persons. When you pray to God, I understand that Jesus and the Spirit hear you. But think about this. As you read the Bible, you would not say, God, the Father, died on the cross. And you would not say that the Spirit died on the cross. Because the Bible proclaims that nowhere. Who died on the cross? Jesus. So I want you to look at your Bible and, and wrestle through, 
Is there any biblical precedent that we pray to Jesus or the Spirit? Danny Salcedo, you may know him, he is a great theologian. He says it like this that I think is very helpful. He's speaking of our praise, but the same would be in our worship of prayer. Directed to the Father because of the work of the Son by the power of the Spirit. Our prayer is directed to the Father because of the work of the Son by the power of the Spirit. Our prayer is triune. Jesus and the Spirit intercede for us. There are passages on that we don't have time to get to. But my hope for this morning is that you walk away encouraged to pray, knowing that God intends you to do this with joy and faithfully and continually. It's not just about the moments where you go away to get time of prayer, but throughout your day, present with God, praying in both preparation and perspiration. Be purposed to pray for the will of God. Yes, he will care for you in your need, but do you pray that his will would be accomplished in his people? And next week, as we look at the content of Paul's prayer, I pray we will be challenged in what we pray for. For people. So pray purposely in the will of God and the need of the moment. Pray postured in humility, dependent on his mercy and thankful for grace in both private and public prayer. Pray in preparation for his will to come and pray as you are sweating life, waiting to see what his will is. And pray humbled, longing to do his will. And be clear in who you pray to, the God of all creation. Bow to him. Be faithful in your prayer to him. And know you can have confidence and access to him. He's not judging you for the words he uses. You use, rather. But he has given you words that you might rightly come to him and honor him and fear him in reverence. And my prayer is that you don't hear this morning, I've been praying wrong. You hear God loves me. Through the work of Christ, by the power of his spirit, I want to pray to him in a way that honors him. Let's pray that God would be so faithful to do so.